the Brexit Breakdown podcast from the UK in a changing Europe. Hello and welcome to another Brexit Breakdown podcast. I'm James Miller, author, journalist, man on a mission to find out more about Brexit. And in this episode, we tackle a big Brexit issue, farming, which I appreciate some people will think, well, I'm not a farmer. Why is that of interest to me? Well, assuming that you eat, it is interesting because the effect on food could be massive depending on how Brexit plays out. I was joined by Nick von Westenholz, Director of EU Exit and International Trade at the National Farmers Union, the NFU. And we went XL again on the wonk front with not just Anand Menon, Director of UK and Changing Europe in the studio, but also a debut for Matt Bevington, Policy Researcher at UK and Changing Europe, who specialises in a few areas and farming and food is one of them. Farming's always been a big issue when it comes to the EU, hasn't it? I remember when I was a kid, the most obvious manifestation of the EU was in the butter mountains and wine lakes you heard about. I remember as a kid imagining an actual mountain made out of butter, and I don't think I was alone in that. And of course, the common agricultural policy has long been a byword for unfairness and inefficiency in some people's eyes. And yet, when it came to the referendum, the NFU, which represents a huge variety of producers, from uh, big arable farms in East Anglia to hill farmers in Wales, uh, and taking in fruit farmers and, and all sorts in between, uh, found itself uh, the NFU found itself accused of a cop-out. So we started by talking about the impact of Brexit on agriculture uh, and whether the NFU had had a good referendum. I mean, there are, there's, there's a broadly common theme in as much as Brexit will have an impact. It's very difficult to find a farm in, in, in the UK who are not going to be significantly impacted by Brexit. Uh, and we like to say that, you know, of all the sectors in the UK economy, farming is going to be impacted more than any. Um, and that's because, you know, we rely on uh, non-UK labour, uh, certainly in some sectors quite heavily, uh, uh, which is primarily EU labour. Uh, we're obviously covered by the common agricultural policy. Some sectors that affects more than others, um, but it uh, it covers uh, you know that is obviously something that covers farming to a, a, a major extent. And we're a primary producing sector, so sixty percent of our exports go into the EU. So our trading relationship well, with the EU is is you know a fundamental part of what farmers farmers do. That's just that's just ruined this week's uh, Brexit family fortunes, by the way. Uh, <laughs> he's gonna, we know he's going to win yeah. when we try and play Brexit. Yeah, he's got the as a good like yeah, I know. That's an issue. Sorry, on you go, Anna. This isn't meant to sound as rude as it's going to, but isn't the most colossal failure of recent times the NFU and the referendum? Um, you know, it's. I don't. Of course, I don't think so. I don't. I don't agree with that. The NFU. Um, you know, we came out before the referendum. Uh, we did uh, uh, a um, pretty deep dive study on what the impacts on farming would be from leaving the EU under different scenarios. In fact, at that time, it was the only study of its kind. Mm-hmm. There have been a few few since which have shown very similar results. And on the back of that, we we said that farming's best interests would be served by remaining uh, in the EU. And that was the advice of the FN- NFU. 
prior to the referendum. Nevertheless, we've always, as a uh, organisation which has existed for over 100 years, uh, never taken a political position that we advise our members what to do in public votes. We never tell them how to vote in a general election. We're an apolitical organisation uh, and we don't believe it's our role to tell NFU members how to exercise their, their democratic rights, but we can advise them on what we see are the facts, which is what, what we did. Now, to be honest, and I think this is an, an issue with the referendum uh, at large, people voted for very many reasons. Uh, mm-hmm. And many people voted for, with their with their head, for emotional reasons and for other reasons which were non-commercial. Um, now we can make a commercial case that that we felt staying in the EU was the right thing to do, but many farmers may have felt that there were other reasons that that, that they wanted to to leave the the EU for. You must have eye roll moments in the office though, where a farmer rings up who you know voted leave and says, "Oh my God, I'm going to lose loads of money. What's going on here?" And you want to say to them. Uh, we told you that. That, that, that to be to be honest, um, that does happen, uh, and I think that is again a problem. It's certainly no criticism of 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 farmers. Certainly no criticism of our members. I'm not going to not going to do that. But, but no, I don't yeah, think I it's failed a criticism. nearly. That yeah. would have been great. That would have been. That would have got us a few listeners. I don't think it. I don't think it. But it's not a criticism of farmers because we all know that this is an incredibly complicated issue. Gosh, even even I think I suspect most of us in this room understand an awful lot more about these issues now mm-hmm. than we did when we voted in 2016. Well, less and less uh, every day, it seems to me. Yeah. <laughs> Perhaps. Yeah. And so we, we are now in a, uh, you know, in a position where people are, are better informed. Um, and I think it's, you know, it was a failure of the referendum. Um, it was a failure of the campaigns that people maybe weren't well informed. So it's absolutely no criticism that uh, people voted the way they did in 2016. Um, there were lots of people telling them lots of things, including for farmers, that actually we're going to save uh, £10 billion pounds, uh, a year um, from what we contribute to the EU, given that the cap budget to the UK farmers is only £3 billion, we're going to be able to throw more money than, you, than you've ever yeah. had. Uh, you know, those sort of claims were made. Very eye-catching, very tempting if you're a farmer. People saying, we're going to do the easiest deal ever with the EU afterwards, so mm-hmm. don't worry, your markets are not going to be cut off. All of those issues, you can understand why people why, why, why people listen to this. But do you think if we had another refer- referendum, if we had another referendum, significant number of your members would vote differently to how they voted first time round? Is that your... I, I don't know. I mean... Um, I wouldn't be confident of saying that, largely because, and you'll have a view on this, you know, what the polls are saying about the mm, okay. uh, opinion changes of, of, of the country at large. And I don't think they are massive. Um, mm. You know, there may be some small shifts, um, but actually I, I, I'm not sure there would be an, a, a huge change in, in, uh, in view because, as I say, people were voting for many other reasons just than, than just their commercial interests. Um, and I think, you know, that as many people who probably are now now feel themselves better informed and perhaps more aware of the risks that we try to flag ahead of the referendum, um, there are others who I think are maybe have become more uh, disillusioned and um, uh, negative about the EU and what that brings to the table. And they haven't, you know, particularly felt this whole process as a, over the last couple of years has held the EU and particularly... Uh, positive light. Let's put aside what it's uh, said about our own politicians and systems. But I, I'm not sure there'd be a sudden, you know, there is a sudden sort of uh, increase in, in uh, positivity about uh, about the EU. So I'm not, I, I, I don't know, but I'm, I wouldn't be convinced there'd be an enormous shift. There may be, there may be some 
smallest shift as there is in the in the country at large. What are your members saying to you now? Is there one single message you're getting given how diverse your membership is? Is there something they're saying in common at the minute or is it still a very diverse yeah, sort of view of things? I mean, it is diverse. And, and, you know, within our membership, unsurprisingly, there are people who are still very keen on leaving the EU mm. and uh, there are those who are distraught about it. And, you know, they're, they're, we capture that within our membership, that wide diversity of opinions. But if you look at the sort of different sectors, if you're, for example... Uh, in uh, horticulture, in, in, in the fruit and, zed, uh, fruit and veg sector, then your real big concern at the moment is around labour availability. You know, there's mm-hmm. a lot of EU workers, particularly seasonal workers, um, in the UK, and there are already some big impacts uh, that we're witnessing in terms mm-hmm. of availability and recruitment, uh, and that's a, that's having a big impact already, and will have an even bigger impact. Uh, and, and then there are other sectors where permanent labour from the EU is a big issue. But if you go over to, say, the arable sector, there's not a lot of um, uh, uh, EU labour there, so the labour issue is less of a concern. But issues around what happens once we come out of the common agricultural policy is enormous. You know, those those arable farmers uh, are, are... It's often the difference between profitability or running at a loss, the payments they receive under the Common Agricultural Policy, and also a lot of the environmental schemes uh, mm. that they tap into um, are provided for under the Common Agricultural Policy. So this whole agriculture bill, agricultural policy reform agenda that Michael Gove is driving is a real issue and interest to them, whereas fruit and veg is largely an unsupported sector, as are poultry and, 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 and pork. So they're much less interested in that and they have other issues. And then trade will impact differently on many as well. The sheep sector is a great example. We export, um, um, nearly all of our sheep exports go to the uh, EU and that's about 40% of our sheep meat production is exported. Um, at the same time, we import an awful lot from New Zealand under a tariff rate quota, so it comes in tariff free. So if you've got a sudden situation where you're being charged tariffs on your exports into the EU, uh, but you're still letting stuff in tariff-free from mm-hmm. outside, as would happen with the sheep meat sector. You can imagine what the impacts of that are. So, so for them, that's really the, the you know one of the, the key things that whole mm. trade issue they're looking. Have at. they been impressed by Michael Gove so far? Michael Gove, I think, is piquing everybody's interest. Um, I mean, what people like is that he's a big hitter, um, and so the profile of farming is is up the agenda, which which is really good. Um, he's also, I mean, he you know he he's an activist. He's he's a doer. And, um, you know, he's coming in, uh, he's got a reform agenda, um, and he's not just sort of sitting around just to sort of, you know, biding his time and painting, you know, warm words about the, uh, the industry. He actually, you know, is, is coming in and saying... Are you saying, referring to anybody in particular that might have been <laughs> former DEF protectors who've been we, we, their time and said what We've had lots of former DEF protectors. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Uh, Any in particular uh, you know, referring to? Me, to I won't refer to anybody, but I don't think it's, uh, you know, a secret that, you know, that the, the, the DEFRA... Uh, sector of state posts is not seen as one of the uh, you know sort of uh, higher higher posts within the cabinet, and quite often I think is seen as either a kind of way in on the way up or perhaps a, a way out the way on the on the on the way down. Michael Gove, it's it's a very different thing you know, for a number of reasons, um, and he I think is he seems to be the sort of person who who is who, wherever he is, he said, well, I'm here. What are the problems? What are the issues? let's try and come up with solutions to to resolve these. And I think that is very positive. What I would say is we need to be careful about trying to identify problems and issues, you know, 
everywhere where some things you know may not be broken and don't need solving and he is by nature i think a disruptor um and that's possibly not always the best approach um for a delicate industry like like farming and it is because uh market returns are are very poor in in farming it is a supported industry under the common agricultural policy um, and there are bits of the industry, uh, busy industry, highly productive, highly professional, uh, and uh, uh, do a do a brilliant job just as businesses. But there are other areas which um, do require public public support and uh, policy. Well, you're all going to get more efficient, aren't you? Mm. Sort it out. That would be the the, yeah. the Brexit argument. It, it, it would be, um, and you know the the response to that is yes, Brexit probably does provide a little bit of a fillip that was needed anyway in mm. terms of uh, driving greater productivity in, in the sector. Our productivity isn't great, hasn't been for a while. Um, but actually, as I said, you know, we talked about the diversity of the sector. That goes right through that productivity piece as well. You know, there are some uh, bits of farming. You, know, you, you get the image of a sort of you know, farmer in his 70s with a piece of you know, <coughs> uh, ear of corn hanging out of his mouth, <laughs> looking over the farm mm. gate with... 20 cows in the field you, you know, there are a few of those out there but they're also highly um, technologically advanced professional um, productive uh, businesses out there um, supplying huge volumes of produce into uh, into the food industry um, which you know don't kind of fit any of that sort of traditional view of farming um, the there are there are other aspects to this though so farming, is quite often um, the, the the sort of mainstay of, of rural economies and rural communities. Um, so you need to be very careful about how you go about disrupting these and causing uh, um, uh, you know uh, uh, disruption into into those localities. Secondly, uh, and this is something Gove is very aware of, um, you know, seventy over seventy percent of the UK landmass is farmed. That is a managed environment. So if you what? want seventy percent of the UK landmass is farmed. Yeah, 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 absolutely. So, so That's a good stat. it is a good stat. <laughs> and and if you and, what about and all the mountains and, in Scotland. Yeah, yeah, well, they're 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 not, but some of them have got sheep on them. Wow, um, so, I so, so yeah. So so, sure. so and that that is a managed environment. And actually, if you don't have farming on that uh, land, then you've got to come up with something else uh, to manage it for biodiversity, for the environment, and all these things. You know, actually, farmers, the way I often look at it, is, you know, it's a kind of ready-made land army, or, you know, looking after and managing the land. Two things, I suppose. One, uh, listeners will have noticed this is like the podcast you've heard the least of me in for a long time, because people are interested in farming. You guys are asking about it. I don't have to ask any questions because you're, you're intrigued. Um, are you finding that, that you're suddenly... Um, people are, you know, it's putting farming in a spotlight, which has been taken for granted, as you say. People think of, you know, the archers when they mm. think of well, I do, because I'm metropolitan liberal elite and I listen to <laughs> I Radio think of 4. Emmerdale. Well, all right, that's because yeah. you're from Yorkshire. Um, are there farmers in Emmerdale? It's not even called Emmerdale no, Farm North anymore. Yorkshire, North Yorkshire. I don't really watch it anymore, but there's no farm in Emmerdale Farm, is there? Well, not since the plane crash, no. Well, exactly. <laughs> oh, I think you're going back, going back a bit there. Um, but yeah, you know, there's an image of farming that obviously, whatever it might be, it's not as. Uh, expansive as your image of farming, you know, in yeah. the NFU, it's very, very wide. Is that a good thing that people are actually thinking about farming where they haven't been before, 
or was it better whenever we just left you alone to get on with it? No, I think it is a. I think it is a good thing. It's it's a sort of silver lining to yeah. a cloud, essentially. You know, the the reason why these issues are coming up and people are interested is because of potential, uh, you know, issues with the future of farming. But actually, what it what it is doing, which is good, is is putting this debate right on the centre of, uh, of of people's minds and politicians' mind in particular. And what is particularly helpful, but we 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 can massively improve on still is the realization that the discussions and the interest in food and farming in recent years has all been about you know lifestyle issues health issues environmental impact if you look at sort of you know coverage of farming issues over the last mm. few years it's all been through that prism suddenly we're actually saying no there's a sort of food production element to, to farming where does your food come from um, you know, how is it produced? How is it made? Um, what are the differences differences between the stuff you're getting coming out of the, the UK and produced on UK farms to food produced elsewhere mm. in the world? What do you want as consumers? Um, Have you, you ever know, eaten chlorinated chicken? Um, I've only been to the States a couple of times, but I, I, I've had chicken when I'm there, so I probably have eaten Are you worried about chlorinated chicken? chicken? The the issue about chlorinated chicken is, is, I think it is an interesting one, and it throws a light on exactly what I was just saying then about yeah. actually interested, suddenly a broader interest in where food comes from and what it's about and farmers' role in that. Um, you know, chlorinated, the, the chlorinated chicken argument is not, for me, about food safety. Um, what it is is about production systems and what sort of production system uh, you're comfortable in and you want. And price, you, you well, well, price then comes into it from a, you know, from, from our, our perspective, certainly. But actually... In the UK and in the EU, you don't. Uh, we don't allow that sort of pathogen treatment at the end of the end of the life uh, mm. uh, of of the chicken, because we take a much more farm to fork approach, where you 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 try and look after the uh, the health and uh, those kind of issues, the the hygiene of the bird throughout mm. its life, mm. and so you don't then just if you if you allow pathogen treatment at the end, essentially what you're saying is those bits matter less because you can just. Dunk it. Crudely, yeah. dunk it in chlorine at the end of it yeah. and it, it'll be safe and actually what we're saying is that we you know prefer uh, a much much higher level of husbandry throughout the life of a chicken and i think consumers naturally prefer that as well uh, and there are uh, he's uh, a vegetarian well all chickens are all evil is that no, what you're no, about no, to no, say no, 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 set them no, free yeah. Yeah. i was going to say on this topic of, of what we can do differently mm. what is it that your that your view is about how things can change in future is it a case of we're basically just going to do the same as a common agricultural policy but make it british or are the things you think we can act with are opportunities now outside the EU to, to change things? Yeah, there, there are. And actually, the, the common agricultural policy one is interesting because wh whatever sort of Brexit we get, that's one thing, as long as Brexit does actually happen, that we will, uh, that, that will change. Mm -hmm. You know, either way, there's no, you know, in both a soft and a hard Brexit and anything in between scenarios, we leave the common agricultural policy. Yeah. And we've all... Well, yeah, there'll be a Norway plus, there, plus there, CAP soon. There, there, <laughs> there, might, there might be, there might be. But, but there is an agricultural bill going through Parliament at the moment, which, mm. which you know, puts in place the replacement policy. Um, and so there's a very active and, and, and um, interesting debate about what that looks like. And it is much more than, well, we want something that looks like the gap, that's just a bit more... Uh, you know, British or UK focused. But the trade-off for me as a non-farmer mm. is 
there need to be some hard choices a made. I see myself a non-farmer. You might, you might down a rabbit hole. There's, yeah. a, there's a few out there. Is, is unique, there are some hard choices you need to make. I mean, you're not going to produce lamb as efficiently as they do in Australia and New Zealand, whatever you do. And ultimately, is it time to start thinking, OK, look, there are some bits of agriculture that actually we should no longer have. I mean, it seems to me you're saying, yes, but this is a chance to rethink, but let's rethink in such a way to preserve it all. And, and I suppose what I'm saying is, why don't you rethink in such a way as to preserve the best bits? Um, However you define that. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I would say we, we it's certainly not saying let's just, you know, preserve an aspect, have it is how, how it is now. There will be, like it or not, I think, some structural changes coming to the industry because of Brexit. It's almost unavoidable. Um, but we certainly don't think that there needs to be a complete sort of overhaul and entire mm. sectors being being sort of phased out. Um, and lamb's a good example. I mean, if you are in the in the uplands of, of Wales, for example, um, there's not much else you can do on those hills mm. uh, other than graze sheep. And actually, grazing sheep uh, is a good thing to do uh, with those hills if you're talking about managing uh, managing the land. So, the 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 comparative productivity or viability of those businesses against other sheep producers in the world is not the only factor. Mm -hmm. You know, if you're not going to graze sheep on those hills, what are you going to do um, uh, in, in, in terms of managing managing the land? It's actually a quite an effective way, uh, from a public policy perspective, of managing that land, of maintaining those very traditional communities as well. Um, you know, if you if you got rid of sheep production there, then you would have serious social problems, uh, and you'd have serious environmental problems. So, so there is a there are those broader considerations. Um, but you know, as I say, I think there will be some some uh, some changes. New Zealand is a good example. Often people sort of throw and say, "Well, look, New Zealand um, completely withdrew subsidies and support mm. from agriculture mm -hmm. in the in the 80s, uh, and look at what happened to them. You know, and they're great now, and they've got this, you know, you know, this this uh, highly productive um, and um, you know export-led uh, agricultural industry." And they have got a you know a, a pretty impressive uh, agricultural industry, but a it was pretty traumatic mm -hmm. the way they did it. Yeah. B they are not the same as the UK. There's four million people Shut on up. an island of what? the same of the same of the same. <laughs> Wait <size>. a minute. <laughs> so what you know when you're when you're you know, when you're hobbits they actually eat quite a lot. They have like eight meals a day now. Um, they um they you know they they they're always going to be an export led agricultural market because of the size of, of, of the country and the amount of people who live live on it. They've also got a much different, uh, obviously, geographical location in as much they've got China and the Far East growing, uh, not quite on its doorstep, but near enough. You whereas, look unconvinced by the fact that they're in a different we've, place. We've got... We've, we've <laughs> I thought got, you were about to pile in with your sheep expertise. Like, oh, I can't wait to hear We've this. got the EU on our, on our doorstep. And their agricultural transition has not been without problems. I just love kebabs. I mean, we're that's, right. that's well, where I'm coming right. from. Right. Well, let me come on to that in just a sec. First of all, you talked about uh, sheep farmers in Wales. What's going to happen to Kate Humble? Know, is she going to be all right? Have you, not, have you not had her on yet? She's got a sheep farm in North Wales, hasn't she? For a laugh, you know, she's your classic lifestyle farmer. Yeah. Is she going to be all right? Is well, she's well, she going to have to come sheep, back and make sheep I can't stand her telly programs. <laughs> Can you keep her in Wales? Keep Just her as a heads up, the first tweet to accompany this podcast. <laughs> right, right. Kate Humble, yeah. absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know what I'm doing. I, hope, I know what I'm doing. I hope Kate will be okay. <laughs> well, let's get her on the podcast and find out. Yeah. Secondly, think he, Barack Obama's got a lot of followers too. We could. Is uh, he a sheep farmer? 
expressed any interest in, in I was about to say growing sheep. Oh god, how liberal metropolitan you are. Yeah, we grow sheep. Um, you love kebabs, yeah. and uh, that's the question, isn't it? Are uh, we going to have lots of cheap kebabs? I mean, from what we're seeing, you're saying. It's, 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 it's complicated. <laughs> I get that it's complicated, yeah. and as ever on this podcast, I'm the idiot who will try and simplify it. But basically, what you're saying is the price of sheep meat is going to go through the floor, and we can all have loads of cheap kebabs. Is that is that the the upshot? Yeah, the, so the upside of so it? so what we're getting at really then is, and, and again, don't want to keep coming about sheep meat because there are lots of other, yeah, other sure. issues. But right. it's actually but cheap, no, no, but, no, but sheep meat is a good one because because of that issue I I, I said where. It's 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 a slightly unique situation. We export a lot into the EU, mm. and we import a lot from outside the EU. So, in a no deal situation, it's a sort of double whammy. Yeah. Um, where you've got a tariff wall against anything you're trying to export. But, but that would apply stuff, to stuff. a lot of different sectors. Um, not not as not as much acutely, if not, you as like, a, not as acutely because um, you know quite often the imports are coming from the EU as well. So if there's yeah, if okay. there's barriers there, they, those exist both ways. Um, so, but but sheep meat is interesting because because mm. our most of our imports are coming from outside, but not, the not all cheap um, food. Well, it, it it's for sheep meat that could that certainly is the is is the the big risk. Now, this comes to the point. Yeah, cheap about, food's not a big risk. Cheap food's uh, a great thing. It, isn't it? It, it it's cheap food is well cheap. I don't like the word cheap. So okay. affordable food is 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 clearly good. The yeah. UK. As a percentage, as, as a proportion of our, our income, our disposable income, only Singapore and the US spend less on food. So, food who, to use your term, consumers spend, consumers. spend less on food. So, so, so really, despite yes. the prices. So, food, so cheap food, as you put it, food is cheap in the UK. It is very, very cheap. Okay. It's cheaper almost than anywhere else in the world. I don't personally think that there is a problem with the price of food in the UK that needs to be addressed via Brexit. If people are struggling to afford food, which clearly they are in this mm. country, it's not because food is too expensive. It is because of incomes and a whole load of other uh, economic issues that are causing hardship. And when politicians go out there, which they do, and say, well, Brexit bonus, one of the great things, we'll be able to get cheaper food. They're, not, they're just coming out with this stuff. They're not sitting down, thinking, applying their brains and saying, actually, is that the big problem in UK at the moment? Food is too expensive that we need to solve through Brexit. It isn't. And if, if that is the driver and you start losing British production, you start losing farms from the landscape who, as I've said already, look after it, um, then I think it, the public suffer a lot more than the fact that they might be getting a few pence off their... Uh, like, you're off you're some sort of crazy man. You've come around and told me that Britain is not like New Zealand and politicians are saying stuff that just comes into their head. I, who, who, what? So what is, is your, your one-sentence response to the politician who says WTO terms will be great? Uh, no, it won't. <laughs> that's great that is, that is a good answer I like that it's an edit someone said something boring or illegal maybe told some slanderous story about Boris Johnson you'll never know you're a farmer yeah how are you going to be affected? What have you got? You've got um, crops. Yeah. Yes, arable. Boring, That's the word I'm looking for. Boring crops. Yeah. Are they boring? Wheat. How much? How barley, many acres have you got? I couldn't. Uh, couldn't tell you. No, I'm, we're we're a what I'd call a medium small arable. What's farm. a medium small? How many acres yeah, do you have of your medium small? Hundreds of acres. That sounds yeah. like a lot. Well, you, you well, it's a lot for a garden. Not yeah, yeah. Farm. <laughs> for, a, for, a farm, I mean, for an arable farm, it's not. I mean, you know, it, it's um, it, to be economically viable, you probably need more than that. But we farm in partnership with uh, with other people. So, uh, do you have to take time off 
for the harvest? Do you have to? Or I do, but um, I'm a high risk in a tractor, so <laughs> they try and keep me uh, keep me out of them these days. Um, Why? Well, no, what I mean, have you done in a tractor before? I can't tell you. Uh, I've, I've, have you crashed? Of course, damage. Have you crashed a combine harvester? <laughs> of course, damage. <laughs> to what? I'm not telling. You. No, 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 come on. We'll move on. We'll move on. <laughs> well, this is, this, I mean, you know, Brexit's interesting and all that sort of thing, but <laughs> tractor <laughs> crashes. It's all come sorted. On. The insurers took care of it. Is there, video, is there video of it we could use somewhere? Certainly not. That sounds like a TV programme on Channel 5. Tractor crashes, that sounds good. Um, okay, well, listen, let, let's wind up with the, the features. And we'll start with... Oh, this is going to be a disaster this week because you've got all the stats. It's Brexit Family Fortunes. And here is your host... James Miller. Brexit family fortunes, where we ask you to anticipate the answers. We asked a hundred people something, and you have to guess how many of them not responded. People. Experts, sorry, okay. experts. Yes, <laughs> sorry, not people, experts. Um, I don't. Know, it's a it's a strange old feature this week. This one, isn't it? Given that I'm always moaning about the pollsters, and then someone's yeah. like, in fact, I must talk to you about a pollster. There's a, a, a very senior pollster who started sending me direct messages on Twitter. It's, really? a bit, it's a bit weird. I don't, know, I don't understand. What if he's, questions? Or, well, just, he's like chatty. I've never met this guy. And he's like all <laughs> chatty. And he's like talking to me about nuns last night. I retweeted something about nuns. And he's going, oh, I'm going to tell you about nuns. <laughs> I need to talk about this man. But anyway, we'll talk about that off here. I wouldn't name him on it. Um, let's start with the Brexit policy panel stat, first of all. The Brexit policy panel is the 100 experts. How many of the 100 experts in the very latest Brexit policy panel think that they... Theresa May's deal will not pass by the 29th of March. Uh, have you seen these stats? Were I you have listening? seen them, but Were I you can't listening remember. In the other room? Oh, no, I've seen them. He should them because he's the boss. Let's Answer. start with Anand. Go on. How many of your 100? 25. Experts? He's going 25, Nick. Yeah, I think that's probably pitched about right. Say 32. 40? He's right. He's bang. You do know the figures. <laughs> 40%, no, I only 40% of the experts say there'll be no no deal will pass. Mm. I think that's quite a lot. That yeah, seems, yeah, that's uh, that seems uh, yeah. Yeah. I know they were probably asked last week or something. But, um, right, this is, uh, you can't do this, Matt, because okay. these are your stats. And I've got to try and remember which ones that Nick's actually already mentioned. Let's do how much food and drink do we export to Ireland? Ireland alone. Go um, on, Nick, you want a first. percentage? Yes. As a share of our exports, how much goes to Ireland? I would say... As a share of total exports, uh, food and drink exports. Yeah, uh, t- total food and drink exports. 20 f- 28%. Oh, and, and. Well, obviously, I'm sticking to him, aren't I? I'm going to say 30, <laughs> heavy. Actually, no, actually, that. Ooh, that, that, that whoa, no, no, whoa, no, no. I don't. I'm giving away something with my face there. The problem, yeah. the problem is, um, is Scotch whiskey and smoked salmon completely distort um, the figures, and a lot of those go to, say, North well, America. So it's probably less than that. Distort a lot of things. Yeah, yeah. Scotch yeah, whiskey yeah. and smoked salmon. Twenty so, percent. Uh, yeah. So yeah, yeah, I, yeah I'll yeah. give you that. That was that was pretty well right. In the unlikely event this podcast has not enlightened you sufficiently, let's finish off with uh, recommendations. Uh, in the unlikely event this podcast has not enlightened you sufficiently, what would you recommend to understand Brexit, Matt? I think you've got a good you've got a good recommendation, haven't you? Yeah, not planted. Um, so the inside Europe. Uh, documentary on BBC Two is very good. In particular, I think there was a second episode, which is about the Eurozone crisis, because it 
really shows you how the EU works and all the internal machinations. Mm. And it's not about Brexit. Which... It's about Grexit. It's, yeah, it's about Grexit. Brexit was the original thing. Brexit wasn't a thing. Exactly. It wasn't even a word. It was no, all no, Grexit no. was the imagine. You forget now that, you know, yeah. it was all about Grexit yeah. and then Brexit came along and became... That's a good, a good example of how the EU handles the crisis. Nick, what do you recommend? Yeah, I've, I've, got, I've got quite a good one because I was talking to somebody uh, in uh, at work about this the other day. There's... History is obviously, we should always learn from our history. So there's the writings you will all be familiar of, familiar with of the um, sixth century British monk, Gildas. Yeah. 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 You, know, no. you, you know him. You know him. Gildas. Right, this is good. G-I-L-D-A-S. Okay. He, wrote, he wrote a book called the, the Ruin and Defeat of the Britons. And so it was all about um, the uh, departure of the Romans and the coming of the Anglo-Saxons. This is Gildas and, and Sullivan. Yeah, yeah, and and, and, and but actually, what it, you kind of just realise there's nothing new under the sun. So they they firstly you had Brexit because the Romans left. Then you had um, whoa, whoa. Yeah, I don't yeah, know yeah. if I can allow that. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if I can allow yeah, that. Yeah, is that an actual thing? But yeah, yeah. Of course it is. They, yeah. And then, <laughs> okay. but then they were so the Britons then were under attack from the Picts and the Scots, and they sent a sort of missive over to the Romans on the mainland to come and rescue them which was ignored. So at that point, they then did a deal with the Anglo-Saxons. And essentially, there was a treaty. There was an early EU where there was a treaty between the Britons and the Anglo-Saxons. The Anglo-Saxons uh, actually came and colonised parts of East Anglia. Then that all broke down um, and there were some pretty nasty battles. And then they came to a... And then they, they had to break the treaty. They had to leave. So the, the whole thing had to be unwound. Um, in, a, in a kind of really? yeah, like a withdrawal agreement, um, and um, uh, and Gildas in particular is very interesting because he's really scathing about the leaders of the Britons. So there's he's wow. sort of a scathing gets, monk. He gets really kind of stuck into how terrible the politicians of the time are. Sort of Tim Shipman. The, the, the best thing about him is um, is the terminology he uses, which is sadly missing from the current debate because you have got the, the political de- declaration on the future economic partnership is also dry. That when this when this plea went out to the mainland Europe to save them from the picks, it was called the groans of the Britons, which I think is great, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. wow. You just think actually at the moment as the, a, groans, you know, the, of the groans of the Britons, and then even better when when they eventually broke the treaty with the Anglo-Saxons, that was called he called it the uh, the grievous divorce. Oh wow! Is this widely available? This book? Uh, I think it's an all good bookshop. Oh wow! Yeah, yeah, as a scroll, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. I, thought I thought you'd but, give it a big yeah, build-up yeah. saying it was a good one, but yeah. it was a good one. That is a cracking <laughs> recommendation. Come on, what's your recommendation, Anna? What I think this me? week it has to be Dante's Inferno. Oh, oh, oh very, very good. good. Yeah, yeah. Yes, yeah. good one. Yeah. Just to locate your circles. Yeah. And while we're on recommendations, even though I don't let people recommend their own stuff, uh, it is NFU conference, and the NFU has produced loads of stuff on Brexit. We have indeed. Is there anywhere in particular anything? Any of your publications in particular we should look at, or is there a lovely section of your website? There is that a Brexit section on the website. Yeah. If you go to the NFU website, it's easily navigable to from the front page. And uh, indeed, we even have some Brexit podcasts on it. <laughs> Gildas and Sullivan, did you get Anand's joke there? betraying his true interests. He pretends he's all into Brexit and that, but really, 19th century musicals are his thing. Were Gilbert and Sullivan from the 19th century? Um, I think so. Uh, Or maybe he was referring to Gilbert O'Sullivan, and actually 1970s nasal troubadours are his thing. I'll find out before the next episode. Should have thought of that before I started there, really, shouldn't I? Uh, But I will find out. 
Uh, I think the main thing to come out of that episode uh, is that I was a bit mean about Kit Humble, wasn't I? For which I, uh, <coughs> I, 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 I humbly apologise. Uh, as we um, established uh, in that conversation, I'm a bit metropolitan liberal elite when it comes to farming and all that. Uh, because I said I think you grow sheep. Uh, I don't know what you do. I suppose you farm sheep, you breed sheep. You don't really grow them, do you? And so Kate Humble's programmes about yomping around the countryside don't really appeal to me. But it's just personal taste. There's me giving unsolicited feedback to Kate Humble. Now here's me asking for your solicited feedback. Cool, that was smooth, wasn't it? Um, contact me at Political Yeti on Twitter. Or go to my website, which is james-miller.com, and you can find the whole list of recommendations there from Series 1 and Series 2. Uh, the work of Gildas being a particularly good addition, I would say. Um, you can also contact me that way uh, with your competition entries to try and figure out what is the link between Family Fortunes and Nigel Farage. Um, there is a, Oh, I've just given away part of it there. I said it's supposed to be between family fortunes and Brexit. And I've told you half the connection. It's Nigel Farage. Um, there's a man on Twitter who is inching closer. So you need to get your entries in quickly if you want to beat him to find out what the link is. There you go. I've given away half of it between family fortunes and Nigel Farage. You can also contact the UK and Changing Europe. Uh, they are at... Uh, UK and EU on Twitter and their website is at ukandeu.ac.uk probably best not to contact them about the competition because uh, there's probably a general account and they won't really know what you're talking about so get get come to me with your uh, competition entries um, the music this week has again been Requiem for a Fish by the Freak Fandango Orchestra they do good service don't they and this has been the Brexit Breakdown podcast from the UK and Changing Europe, supported by King's College London and funded and supported by the Economic and Social Research Council. Come back next time for another episode. Thank you and goodbye. Goodbye.